Welcome to episode 134 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Penny Lee Deer. Penny began her military service in the Women Army Corps and served in Desert Storm slash Desert Shield. Her career spanned 20 years from 1975 to 1995. In this interview, we talked about her experience in the military and how it started in the Women's Army Corps and then how things changed when she became part of the U.S. Army in 1978. She talked about being a single mom during Desert Storm and living in Germany and how they had a plan for what happened when she got activated to deploy and her kids flew home to stay with her parents. She also talked about her work she is doing now as a veteran. She credits the arts as saving her life. She is a multimedia artist, writer, and photographer. She is a licensed massage therapist and uses alternative therapy in her own path of recovery and sharing these benefits with others on her website, mindbodysoulbypenny.com. This is a great interview because it covers a lot of different aspects of military history that often aren't talked about. So I really hope you enjoy this interview and let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Thanks to Blue Star Families for sponsoring this week's episode. The Blue Star Families 2021 Military Family Lifestyle Survey is officially open. Be a voice for your community. Help Blue Star Families show what military, veteran, and National Guard Reserve families like yours need to thrive. The survey findings offer insight and data which will inform national leaders, local communities, and decision makers who have the power to advocate for you and drive reform. Visit bluestarfam.org slash survey2021 to learn more and take the survey. But hurry, the survey closes on June 6th. In addition to telling your story to bring about positive change for your family and other military-connected individuals, you'll have a chance to win one of five $100 gift cards. So head over to bluestarfam.org slash survey2021 today to take the survey and to share your voice. And now, let's get started with this week's interview with Penny Lee Deer. Welcome to the show, Penny. I'm excited to have you here. Hello there. I'm glad to be here this morning. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, there's actually a couple of reasons. I grew up in upstate New York, and it was a very small town. I was actually told that I wasn't really college material. So I was going to business school. That was the only two options at the time in 1975. The other thing was, say, if during that time frame, if you were actually, there was a lot of farming communities. And perhaps if I was to stay there, I might end up married to a farmer. And the selection was 36 people in our graduating class. 
And I didn't necessarily see any potential in those people to marry and have 10 children and look like an old lady by the time I'm 39. But the other thing is, I kind of wanted to join the Peace Corps and not sure why I didn't. So I looked into the Marine Corps, basically because I like their uniforms, you know, very smart looking and whatever. Then I said, you're not strong enough to be a Marine. You better go in the Army. So I do. I still do this talking to myself and talking myself out of it all the time. Anyways, I was hoping that there was something more other than my little town. So I wanted to see the world, basically, and do some traveling. And the other thing, once I decided that this would be my choice, I I knew when I left at 19 that I would not be back for 20 years. That's what I set out to do. And that's what I did. I retired at 39. So you knew from the beginning that you were going to stay in for the 20 years? Yes, correct. So you ended up joining the Army, and what was basic training like? My Army was the Women's Army Corps. So during that time frame, it was completely segregated. We were women only, and I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So back during that time period, right at the end of the Vietnam era, you were not allowed to be married. If you had children, you actually had to relinquish their guardianship while you were gone, at least. And you weren't allowed to be pregnant for sure. That would be a dishonorable discharge. And you weren't allowed to have children. So back to basic training, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And so we were Women's Army Corps. And we were one of the first women to have a male drill sergeant. They were trying to transition us into the regular army. And the way they started was having our drill sergeant be a male. And it worked out good. It was totally different than like we could see other platoons that had the women drill sergeants and they looked mean to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I, I didn't I, w- I was glad I had Sergeant Gates actually. So I tell a cute little story that if we were doing well, we were sweet peas. And if we weren't doing our best or we had to do push ups or whatever, we were hamburger heads. So, you know, all the cursing and going on it that people have since done, we didn't have to put up with it. It's also a very different atmosphere. We were basically young ladies. We were either in the admin field or nurses. We dre- we were always in um, dress uniform. Yes, we went to the range. Yes, we fired our weapons. We did all those kind of things. Only there was like etiquette classes. There was standards, high standards, and you were a young lady. I think the basic training was eight weeks. We did women's push-ups, meaning we were on our knees And then we only did the other. Now, that would all change. The Women's Army Corps was disbanded in 1978. So three years I was Women's Army Corps. And then they actually gave me the option of getting out because my contract was for Women's Army Corps. And I became part of the United States Army. And so they gave me an option of changing my contract or getting out if if I wanted to. And this will come into play again when I get married. They offered to let me out. They offered again because because they didn't know what to do with us, truthfully. We weren't allowed to be married. Now we are. We weren't allowed to have children. Now we are. So every time they had to change the contract or give me an option of getting out. I said, what's the matter with you people? Don't you want me here? (laughs) So the first three years you were in the Women's Army Corps. Correct. And then they disbanded that. And then you decided to join the Army uh, and extend your time. What was the main difference between being in the Women's Army Corps and being in the Army? Or was it just a title thing that made a difference? No, it makes a big difference. Uh, well, like I said, now you can have children, you can get married, you were you treated equally. No more women push-ups. There were men push-ups. So you had the same exact standards. 
we actually, when they first did this, we were in co-ed dorms. So for instance, my first duty station, we'll go back to AIT, but my first duty station was first armor division. That's tanks. Okay. So women and that, that period, we weren't by it. We weren't driving tanks, but I worked for the post office and the first armor division. So there was one wing of our building. So there was 20 females for however many, I really should look this up. I tell the story about 10,000 men. Okay. But there was only 20 of us, 20 of us in the, in one wing, but we were really co-ed. The whole barracks was all men. Literally, like we were walking down the hall to take the showers and they're right there too. You know, it's totally different from what I signed up for. So I just became one of the team, just as you would talk to any other, you know, the recent soldiers or whatever. And, and they progressed. Everything's steadily, you know, more fields are opening up now. So when I first joined, I was in the post office. So my advanced training was at Fort Benjamin Harrison, Indiana, and that's where my postal school was. And so the interesting thing about that is if I was overseas and I spent a lot of time overseas out of my 20, 12 out of 20 years was overseas. If I was overseas, I worked at the post office because they have their own army post offices. But if I was stateside, I became an admin kind of person, admin specialist. And But I had an identifier as the postal clerk. So, you know, you had your regular job and then you took care of the mail. So that kind of breaks it up that you're not doing the same thing over and over again. And I did that for 10 years and then I switched to military intelligence. So let's talk about the 10 years that you were doing the post office duties and were there any memories or challenges from that first 10 years? I think it's really interesting that you were there during the, the switch. Not only that, I was there during the, my, my career. I went from the end of Vietnam during the Cold War. I watched all the Soviet Union disbanded. I'm kind of like a living fossil. And then I went to Desert Storm. And uh, yeah, so I, I think I have an interesting story. Okay, so back to the post office. So the first one is Ansbach, Germany. It was the headquarters for First Armor Division. The interesting thing about being in the post office was um, by the time I was done with my first 10 years, I had the same um, designation as a postmaster by the time I could run every aspect of a post office. Back then in Germany, everything was paid by money order. And you went to pay call. Like you had to actually go and, and see the, the officer to get paid that day. And then they all came to the post office to pay their bills, the JC Penny bill, every, everything, their rent, everything. And so I did thousands and thousands of money orders, like $10,000 a day during the payday. I don't know if they still do it, but we got paid twice a month. Some people could do mid, mid month. And anyway, so that's a very busy time of the year. The other thing is in Germany, it's very popular to, they, you can get back then, it was very cheap to buy electronic equipment, like Bose speakers that were huge that would normally cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. You could buy them tax free in the PX and they would ship them home. So that was, you know, a lot of uh, stuff like that. And then the cuckoo clocks, things like that. So the basically is the post office is very important, at least back then, to get communications back and forth to folks. And my mind really works in this very strange way. I could probably tell you the zip codes of the things I used to pitch mail in 1975. It's strange. Like, who cares, right? <laughs> but anyway, 
But it was your job and you you just you memorize it and you know it. And so, yeah, that's really interesting. I think sometimes we forget like how much technology's changed in such a short period of time and how the post office was critical, especially when you were overseas. And now you have I think the post office is still critical when you're overseas more than like stateside. But you have like electronic banking and a lot of different things that make it a really a different a different experience. Yeah, if you got care packages, it would take like three or four weeks to get there because it came by boat, that kind of thing. Your cookies are stale by the time you get them. <laughs> Things like that. Technology has changed so much. It's so crazy. Why did you decide to switch from being a postman to doing Intel? Basically, I couldn't get promoted. So I was at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which is the home of the Intel school. And there, I was much older and I was putting together their promotion packets for these intelligence folks. And I was getting them promoted because I knew how to, you know, put everything together for them. And I said, this is pretty stupid. And the reason I wasn't getting promoted is it has to do with supply and demand. You know, they had enough post office people or they had enough admin people. And so you had to wait for scores to drop and they rarely did. So the idea was for me to transfer and then I would automatically get promoted because I changed to intelligence. Interesting enough, the scores dropped while I was in intelligence school and I actually got promoted as a admin specialist. But it did it it needed to be done because you would come to a point in in the army that if you didn't make a certain rank they would kick you out. And it was was my fault. It was it was almost like a forced um you better do this or you're not going to be able to stay in kind of thing. And I was right at Fort Huachuca, so I just went to school right there. Yeah. So you were like, I'm already here. This job sounds interesting and I'll get promoted. The hardest part I have with switching over was the folks that I was in charge of because of my rank knew more than I did because they had been in the field for, say, three or four years. As long as I was doing management stuff. But if I had to figure out what was on the battlefield, I was a little, you know, I had to catch up fast. Yeah, that makes sense. So you knew the like management side because that's what you had been doing. But then like all the intel ins and outs of the job, you didn't have that time to learn the hands on and you were kind of put. Yeah, it makes sense. So you worked really hard and were able to get caught up to speed. And what were you doing as a, a military intelligence operative? Is it operative? It was an intelligence analyst. And so I took all the information and put it like a puzzle together. So different different forms of intelligence provide information to me. And then based on that, I figure out what's really going on. So in my case, I told you I was part of the Cold War. So I was located in Stuttgart, Germany, and we would watch the Soviets were actually stationed in, in Czechoslovakia at the time, East Germany, Poland. They were all, the Soviets were still there from World War II, where they occupied it and they stayed there, right? But anyway, so with solidarity, and they first took Poland, was the first to uh, declare democracy and declare their rights. So the Soviets finally moved out of there. And then it was like a domino effect where all these, the Warsaw Pacts, you know, ended up disbanding. And then it was back to, this is part of your history for the little people, right? USSR, so it was Mother Russia, but there was 19 other satellites, Belarus and Ukraine. There was all kinds of other countries, USSR, United Soviet Socialist Republic. So they're all communists. But anyway, they would steadily break off, too. So now you, we talk about Russia 
but Russia is only one country of what it used to be. So my job was to watch them disband. And when they said that they were going to dismantle like nuclear weapons or, or all these delivery systems, for instance, a perfect example was a tank. They took off the turret of the tank and made it a tractor. So one of our jobs was at some point, do they put the turrets back on and now you have a tank again? So it was our job to watch, make sure, or if they're playing war games, are they really playing war games or are they trying to build up? And so what's, what I find very interesting now is it's hard to turn off. I've been retired for like 25 years. And when I see things happening, I would say something like, uh, we really need to be looking at this little training exercise here, you know, things like that. So it was interesting time. Yeah, because you were programmed to think that way. And I was there when the fall of the wall in 1989. And then they switched the enemy just like that. That it all happened. But in 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And then we went to Desert Storm and Desert Shield. So interesting story. The hip and hind is a Soviet helicopter. Okay, so that's foe. You got friendly and foes, right? So we're taught that a, a hip is a bad helicopter. Well, I'm over in Desert Storm Desert Shield and we have these big berms, these pile of dirt, and a hip comes across the berm. Well, the Soviets had s- sold it to the Egyptians. So don't shoot down that hip. They really literally <laughs> changed everything on me. And the terrain, for instance, I'm in upstate New York and Germany is a lot like that, that you know, very green, where you go to the desert, there's nothing there. It's sand. There's there's no terrain. It's like you have to shoot at azimuth just to know where you're going and hope that you get there, to include the toilet. You, you shoot at azimuth <laughs> to go to the toilet. There is nothing out there. It's hot. There's sand everywhere. <laughs> so let's talk about your deployment. How did you get activated to deploy? Not activated as in like National Guard, but like how did that process go when you found out you were going to go to Iraq and... And all that stuff that happened. Well, the first thing we did was being in intelligence, we we knew immediately that Kuwait had been invaded. And I want to say August. Basically, we got notification that we would be deploying or get ready to deploy. So we would go to a briefing and then we had to learn all about how their culture is different. When we first got there, we weren't allowed to drive. They wanted us to wear that, I don't know, covering. I forget what it's called. But anyway, they literally wanted the, the female soldiers to be covered up and not for us to drive our own vehicles. And the military DOD had to tell them this is their soldiers. You know, there was a lot of prep. But one of the things in training is you you prepare for it at all the time. Like you really have a go bag at any time. So you might go to work one day. And we did alerts in Germany where literally when you dropped your kids off at the babysitter, you really didn't know if you were getting on a plane or not. They, they We prepped for it, I guess. So the kinds of things that were already in place was... We had privately owned vehicles, so they knew that it was supposed to be shipped back to the States or your children. There was already power of attorneys in place and what was supposed to happen to those children. So we basically, we had trained for it all and it all got implemented. So my two children, four and seven years old, went to my mother's house in upstate New York from November till I left in May. And then they finished up their school year and then we got them back to a system. And after Desert Storm, it turned out that 7th Corps headquarters is where I worked in Stuttgart. And because uh, they were starting to downsize. So we we literally closed up the barracks. That was my job before we left. And 
swept it all out and gave it back to the Germans that we had taken from them back in 1945. So it's a circle, a huge circle. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So you guys were, you found out in like August the invasion happened. And then and you I guys, was there by Thanksgiving. And you guys started to like practice, which is what the military does. You had all the paperwork and all the, were you married at the time? A single parent, which was, it, that's really tough to do in the service. You know, dropping the kids off at daycare at all all kinds of hours. And that's actually how I, I don't know at what point you want to talk about that, but I actually opened a daycare for military folks because when you drop off the children at, at on post, six o'clock in the morning is the earliest and you have to pick them up by 6 p.m. Well, the army doesn't work like that. So I literally, when I got out of the service, I opened a daycare 24 hours to accommodate them. That is a, an important aspect that I don't think people realize, especially with exercises and ramping and all that stuff. There is no nine to five. And I recently talked to someone and she was talking about how now that she's a mom, she has a lot more empathy for the, the parents that she had. Who She was a young lieutenant and she was like, "Why? Do, what do you mean you have to go get your kids? A lot of dual military or single parent families and like how they have to try and work around the limitations of the child care. I paid an astronomical amount of money on daycare. You know, not that they didn't deserve it, but you had a child for 24 hours. So anyway, that's what I did. So your kids went back home, back to the States. How did they get to the States from Germany? At the time, you could fly unaccompanied. So when she was four, she must have just made, they might have made special arrangements because of the war. But my, my son had been flying back. He used to spend the summers. So it was kind of like just another, we, we just stayed longer. But so they did unaccompanied. I would be scared to death to do that now, to send your kid unaccompanied on an airplane. But they did. Yep. So like the stewardesses kind of keep track of them and, and they picked them up from. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes. <laughs> that's crazy. I agree. I agree. That's crazy. But that's I mean, that's so cool. That, like everything was planned out, even to the like detail of like mom doesn't get you. You're going to the airport and going to grandma and grandpa's. Right, right, right. So an interesting story that I remember from my daughters. Now, remember, we don't have cell phones. My son and daughter are watching on the TV that the war is over in February, right? It lasted, it was six weeks long and then the airstrike, three days of ground war, and then it was all over. So my daughter finally got to, it was a Mars system, like some kind of electronic, you got on a radio and they connected you somehow, like a CB radio kind of thing. But anyway, I, I talked to her and she said, mom, the war is over. When are you coming home? Well, I never came home until May. So it was first in, first out. You know, so the Marines were there first. They got to get home first, things like that. So how do you tell a four-year-old? Four she didn't understand that. One of the neat things I have is my mother made them at the time write in journals. They, that's how they wrote to me. They wrote in a journal where the letter really didn't come to me at the time. But I have it now. I have their little handwritings and I have their stories of everyday stuff. One of the things they did do is um, we both did those little cassette players that kind of looks like a, a phone now, but they're little cassette players. And so they could talk to me like it might be three or four weeks old, but I hear their little voices and, and vice versa. I would send it back. And the neat thing about that is my parents would share these tapes with other like the people in the hometown. 
So they knew what it was like sitting in a berm at night with guard duty and and living it with me. That's really cool history, especially the the letters from your children in a journal. That is so cool. And I don't know if you know that April is the month of the military child. You should totally write about that or share it somehow. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. I also have. So I, I would write people back and forth, friends and stuff. They saved my letters and gave them back to me like 20, 25 years later. I was like, who would have thought, right? That's interesting. I have all my letters that I got when I was deployed, but no one's ever given me, except for my husband. <laughs> I have all the letters I sent him. So I actually have one on my desk right now. Yep. So so I have the postcards that I sent my kids, you know, my parents have since died and I got them all. So it's very cool. That is really cool. That's like really cool history. That's amazing. It would be so cool to hear from like a four and seven year old whose mom's overseas and what they think. And I think there's a lot of stuff that adults do for the month of the military child. And sometimes we forget about like the kids have stories, too. Well, my daughter is 30, born in 84, whatever that makes her. She has a three year old now, but she was in the army. She And she married an Air Force and she got out because she wanted to have children and she didn't want to leave them behind. So it does affect them. And, but it's, it's interesting to hear her perspective, what she thought or her perception of how things were or my perceptions. And they definitely don't match it. You know, I like or she'll tell me how something hurt her. And I didn't even get the idea that it was even a concern or I'm thoroughly exhausted right from work and then I just want to collapse and so who's really playing mommy here you know yeah that sounds really interesting so you guys finally got reunited and you were closing up the base because the army was downsizing with the end of the war and then did you come back to the states to finish out your last few years yes so I did 12 years in Germany out of 20 and four different locations. It wasn't all at once. And then four different places in the States and Desert Storm was uh, Saudi Arabia. So let me see, when I came back, by that time, I'd already been to Fort Belvoir, Virginia. That's where I had my first son. And then I went to Germany and then back to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And then this is interesting. So it was the 515, 513th MI Brigade, and the whole brigade packed up. So a thousand people moved to Fort Gordon, Georgia. We in, we kind of invaded Augusta, Georgia, the whole brigade. So all these people, we had to find housing and, and you know, all the family members and stuff like that. So that's unusual for the whole unit to go. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about a housing crisis. <laughs> They're like, there's no houses, all these people. Yeah, yeah. they went to build a lot. Let me see. So I've been at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And I, I lived right outside of Quantico in Dumfries. And then um, Stuttgart, Permasan, Swybrooken, and Ansbach, Germany. The desert. And the desert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Close to half our Abad. So that's so crazy. That's such a cool... I just think it's so cool because I don't get to talk to a lot of Desert Storm veterans about their experience and the fact that your time went from the WAC to the regular army through the Cold War and then Desert Storm. Is, that's a really cool history of time where a lot of people think it's like, oh, it's just peacetime, but it wasn't right. even close to peacetime. No. It was a no. different type I of... I got out in 95, so 75 to 95. Do you want to hear a little bit more about the desert or... Yeah, let's talk more about your deployment. 
it's really hard to explain these berms that it's, I, I want to say they're about 40 feet high. It's a pile of sand. And then you would put one berm inside of another berm inside of another berm. So it's kind of like a, and then you had this great big berm on the outside. So I would live in a tent in one of these facilities that like in a, and in one of the berms, but you had to find this hole to go through. Okay. And then if you didn't find, and then you'd have to go to my workstation, wherever that is. And I had a shift from noon to midnight. And like I told you, the ba- like when you went to the bathroom, you had to shoot an azimuth in order to find what you're looking for. The, the, the latrines where we, we actually burnt our own feces, that kind of thing. But anyway, and light discipline, you can't use any light. You just have to, you know, hope that you find where you're going to include going home. And so I spent one of the, one of the things that a story that I tell is I got something went wrong. I didn't find the right place to get into the next berm. And I would wander around and it was getting to be like four o'clock in the morning. I got off at midnight and I couldn't find my way home. And then I came across artillery. So I'm on the outside of the berm. They're the ones protecting us. I went, oh, this is this is nuts. I'm going to get myself killed out here because I'm. they're going to think I'm the enemy. But anyway, so I finally came to this tent and I finally said, I'm just going to wait to daylight because I'm, I'm lost in my own facilities, right? So it wasn't until the cook came into the mess hall is where I ended up. I didn't know it. They turned the light on and it's my own dining facility. I was like a stone's throw of where I'm supposed to be. But you know, like, what's this lady doing? <laughs> in my, she's, you know, they're ready to cook breakfast at four o'clock in the morning. I had another incident where I'm on guard duty. And so we're waiting for the bad guys. If there was a bad guy, we're waiting for them. to. to so light discipline is a real issue. And so we see these lights coming directly at us in this, we're in a, our foxholes that are in these great big burns. And so then you have Constantina wire on it, but these lights are coming towards us. And that doesn't even make sense. If the, it's the enemy, they wouldn't have lights on either, right? They're going to attack stealthily. Well, anyway, luckily I heard English because I didn't light them up. But what they they had gotten diverted and they had no idea that they were about to cross into the Constantina wire and I was about to, you know, fire on them. And it all worked out. We realized that they're, you know, they were, they were good and they figured out what they were doing. But it could have, you know, friendly fire. It could have been disastrous. That's crazy. So you guys had like giant berms to like protect from shrapnel and then these little tiny holes to get through in different places. And it was like a maze. It was like a maze. Right, right. And in the daytime, it's no big deal. But yeah, and doing it in total darkness where you can't see anything and and then you make a wrong turn and then you're like totally off. The sand gets into everything to include your lungs and you're you're basically sleeping where camels slight sleep. Right. Very, very unhealthy. And are you familiar with uh, the Gulf War syndrome? One third of us are sick from the deployments with all kinds of different things. And I have done a number of research projects documenting it, not only for my own purposes, but to help other people. Social media has been fantastic because we all compare notes, you know, and then, but they have a research facility down in New Jersey and I volunteer to be, they figure out different lung capacities and sleeping and it's a whole gamut, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and then what we can do about it. A lot of alternative therapies seem to be the best instead of medication, things like that. So so is that something that you've been involved in since you left the military or was it in recent years? It was no. Well, after I so I got out in 95 and 
I never went to the VA until 2003. I wanted nothing to do with the village. I didn't even identify as a veteran. It was just fairly common. But the only reason I did was I wasn't feeling well. Things were, I was having terrible nightmares and it was affecting me. And so I reached out for assistance. We never go on sick call. We never pay attention. You know, just suck it up kind of thing. Well, I finally was paying attention to all that was going on with my body. And then I actually went to school for a massage to help me, to for me to help other veterans and f- for me to better understand my body and what was going on with it. And that was very beneficial. And since then, I know a lot more about wellness and, and the alternatives and I highly recommend it, that kind of thing. So, but it was basically to help myself get well because I didn't want to be on a bunch of medications. That only masks the problem. And of course, suicide, you know, what can, what can we do to help that whole situation? So Yeah, I found that meditation and essential oils and essential oils really help me someone asked me like how do you sleep at night and I was like I do meditation I I diffuse essential oils and I have different essential oils based on my anxiety level and exactly and it helps me sleep and we make our own um I've had a couple of classes where we make our own potions so to speak blending different ones together for whatever's going on yeah, so I I found meditation. My mom told me about it and she's like, I think you need to do this. And I was like, no. And then she sent me an article and it was talking about how uh, veterans with PTSD use meditation. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll actually do what you're suggesting. And it's been really helpful just for just for me to be able to work through different things and to stop and then essential oils. So I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing today. I mean, we talked a little bit about some of the things that you're doing. So I, I am a licensed massage therapist. Um, what I found was that, so I graduated in 2012 with that. And what I found was it was very taxing on my body, very demanding. And of course, I have all these issues anyway. And so there are, so I've gravitated to cranial sacral massages or something that's not so taxing on me. And I, I do very limited amount of massages currently. So, but what I do is I facilitate a group called Arts for Vets. It's actually a committee within the American Legion and it's support our troops committee, Arts for Vets. And uh, it's here in Albany, New York, the Zaloga Post. How that happened was um, we used to go to different therapies at the VA. And in 2016, they said that they're going back to a medical model where you only do 12 sessions and then you're dismissed. Well, in my case, I had been going to writing therapy, art therapy, music therapy, individual and group. And then I was actually part of the Vets of Albany Choir and the Bell Choir where it goes chimes. Anyway, I was I would go four days a week. That was my place to be. And then all of a sudden they stopped it. It was really hard to take. In my case, I got mad. A lot of people just became recluses and didn't know what to do themselves and literally ended up on, you know, psych wards, things like that. Because, you know, you had all this and then it's all gone. Well, anyway, so basically I got mad. And there was two other veterans that went and we said, well, we're going to just start Arts for Vets, just like that. So then I said, well, we just can't, Penny just can't start her own organization. You know, how realistic is that? So what I did was I went to the American Legion looking for a room to just a room that we could hang out with, have coffee, right? Once a once a week. And so they said, by all means, you know, that room's not being on Tuesday, come on, or Friday or whatever. Then they saw what we were doing. And then people started coming. And then they said, How about this? 
How about you become a committee within the American Legion? And it's a win-win. You have, you have your support you need. You have your place and financial support. And then you're, you are filling our task of support our troops. I guess every American Legion has a support troop. So anyway, we are officially a committee and we've grown. We have an annual art every at the Create Community Studios. Is She actually is our art therapist. And because we lost that at the VA. So we still have a therapist and, but we have these, um, an annual, it's going to be our fifth one in November. And this week, this year, we actually branched out and we kind of did, are you familiar with the creative arts at the VA? They have five categories. Well, we, we really, <laughs> for this last year during COVID, right before COVID, actually, we ended up doing open mics. We do a lot of writing. So we actually were on Zoom and like, we would do little dramatizations. And anyway, we kind of like broadened our horizons a little bit, all because of COVID. We, we figured out how to do stuff on Zoom. So indirectly, it's helped us. And the other thing I want to tell you is the best thing that ever happened to me was getting kicked out of the VA because it turned out to be what I needed. Like I've got my own little tribe, I don't know, a platoon, whatever, that I'm giving back. And it's obviously needed. So, and now, right now, we are getting ready to send our art to the Women's Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Uniting Us is is uh, sponsoring, uh, it's called Summer of Healing. And they're going to do six-week segments, and part of our art will go there during that time frame. And they're picking it up. They're actually coming to, from Virginia to Albany and picking up our art. And uh, we are thrilled. Well, I'm excited. I live outside of D.C., so I, I, you're going to have to tell me so I can go to the memorial. I already need to go to the memorial. I'm waiting for my vaccine. We we actually have art in Dulles Airport. When I go flying someday in the future, I'll have to look for it because that's the airport I fly out of. So that's that's really cool. I think that's really cool. And I think I just did a cross stitch for my four-year-old or because he was mad when he found his brothers. And so I finally did his baby cross stitch. And when I was doing it, I found such like a connection to doing this project. And I didn't really think about it until you were talking about the art and the creating and like using my hands to create something and how healing that was. And I didn't ever think about it. I just was trying to do something for my four-year-old because he was mad when he found his brother's Well, they actually have an organization that's called Help Help Heal Veterans and they send you kits in the mail. I'll have to put that in the show notes and I'm going to check it out. HHV.org, it's called. Okay, and then Uniting Us is the one where we, where the art is. Yes, they actually send you periodically little craft kits. That's awesome. So did we miss anything from your time in the military, from your career, or even as a veteran? I try to be an advocate for women veterans with um, military sexual trauma. I speak for those people who are unable to speak for themselves at this time. One of the, one of the, in Dulles, there's currently the eyes of MST. One of those eyes are mine. They are, I submitted them for somebody else. Uh, Cindy Hooker is the one that painted them. But I think it's phenomenal that my eyes are in Dulles Airport. But the other thing I just literally did was a video, which it says, uh, the eyes are watching you. Like I'm watching the predator now. And, uh, I've t- been told it's very powerful. It's like, 
And send that to me so I can put that in the show notes so that people can look at that. Sure. Were you a victim of military sexual trauma? We don't need to talk about it unless you really want to, but I just, I think that's great that you're able to give back and help, especially women who can't speak up for themselves. There's one little thing I would, I would say about this is one of the problems is reporting, right? So I would definitely encourage folks to report, even if they didn't when during the time, do it now still. But one of the things I wanted to mention was, I guess a couple of things is I didn't report it at the time. Okay. All I did was I went to another service member of the same rank as me and told him about it. And this is what he said. He thought he was supporting me, but this is what he said to me. He said, if you don't report it, you're going to find yourself upside down in a foxhole. I was on my way to war and the enemy was inside the wire. So he planted the seed that I wasn't even safe within my own perimeter in the, inside that berm. Right. So he thought it was, you know, it, it kind of was, it wasn't very helpful thinking about it. I didn't think about it at the time. It's when things years later, you know, and I ended up reporting it. And we were, because we're a military intelligence, you have to have security clearances. And the per- person that attacked me needed a security clearance. And when I told the story, he didn't get the security clearance. And so he couldn't stay in the field. So indirectly, I got my justice years later. Yes, that's a powerful story of reporting it years in the in the future and and having something happen. And just the more information that I think researchers have and the VA has about this issue, the more that they can work to help this and try and make changes. And hopefully, hopefully things will get better because there's a lot that needs to be changed. So my last question is, what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? I would definitely recommend that they do. The, the biggest thing that uh, just be aware of your surroundings, always have buddies, male or female, doesn't matter. You, who's going to have your six? And that's everyday life, too, truthfully. Yeah. It's a great career, right? I, I've been retired for 25 years. I got out in 95, so 25 years, 26 years, right? I've been collecting a retirement for that long, as long as I've been out. I was in for 20, and I've been retired for over 20. And so it's definitely worthwhile. And I loved it. I love the, you know, I went all over. My children's travel the world, that kind of thing. Yes, there's war. Yes, there's deployments. But I think that they are changing. And my, my, my daughter was in the service and they actually are, for instance, TBI is a real problem right now. I understand they're actually giving you an MRI before you deploy to make sure that how it com- compares when you come back. And so that means that they're kind of expecting it, but it helps with claims right? Things like that. Or they have a sharp program where she's told me, you know, like the sergeant major would say, are you sure nobody's, you know, doing anything inappropriate with you or something like that. So I definitely think there's strength in numbers. We need more women in the military and by all means, whatever career they want to do, do it. If they got the skills and, um, I agree. There's a lot of good stuff happening for women in the military and the more women we have, I think the more change that can take place. One of the things I, I, real quick, I think is neat is because we ended up becoming a committee within the Zaloga Post, normally American legions are, are older gentlemen, right? And so all of a sudden this committee, we have this infiltration of women because you have to, you have to be a member of an American legion in order to be part of our group. So indirectly we've gotten, uh, they love it. The fact that all these females are joining the American legion. So it was kind of like a, 
I don't know, back door, a different way of getting in there. But I think that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. I guess I would encourage people to join the American Legion or it doesn't have to be that VFW. I, I just learned that if you are in the service, you can actually join while you're in the service. So you get credit for all the years of like, say, if you're in for four years, you're already a member of the American Legion. And that goes, I met somebody who'd been in the Legion for 75 years. And I'm looking at him like, there's no way. He's not like not a hundred. So I went over and asked him. He said, I joined in, when I was 17 years old, when I was in the service. And yeah. That's a good piece of advice. And yeah, I think women commonly uh, walk away from the veteran community. And if we can get involved with the veteran community while we're still in, it means it's more likely that we'll stay in that community. And it's really important because these these organizations, uh, fraternities or whatever, they help lobby the numbers and help lobby in, in Congress and the Senate for for our rights. Right. So it's important. It is. Yeah. And I, I did a series last year with the Military Officers Association of America, and they talked about lobbying and what they do and how they work with the VFW and the American Legion and the veteran organizations. So if you're interested in learning more about what the lobbyists do on Capitol Hill for veterans, you can check out that episode and I'll link to it in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoy getting to hear your story and getting to hear the different experiences over your 20 year career. And I'm, I'm just so glad that we got connected. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. episode of women of the military podcast do you love all things women of the military podcast become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review it really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow are you still listening you could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book women of the military on amazon every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.